Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Chris Martin talking about neurodiversity and how to parent neurodiverse teenagers. Whether or not your teen has been diagnosed with ADHD or autism or any kind of neurodiversity, really all teenagers are neurodiverse in some way. What does it really mean to be neurotypical? Chris thinks that all kids are neurodiverse and as we get older, as we move into the teenage years, we start to start to narrow down our sense of possibilities about how our our mind is supposed to work and how we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to interact with other people and the world. Some people end up fitting into this neurotypical box more than others, but really all of us to some extent are kind of faking it. Chris is a poet and in his work with non-speaking autistic children, he has developed a really, really deep and fascinating understanding of how to communicate with kids whose brains work in all kinds of different ways. I am so excited to speak with Chris today about his stories and experiences from his work with non-speaking autistics, as well as what his insights mean for parents today. How can all of us get our, our kids to open up and feel more comfortable talking to us about uh, the ways that they think? What can we say to teenagers who are having a hard time really fitting into the box of the neurotypical dominant culture? That's the conversation we're about to have today with Chris Martin, the author of the book May Tomorrow Be Awake on poetry, autism, and our neurodiverse future. Really excited to dive into all that and a whole lot more. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Welcome to the Talking to Teens podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I'm uh, just so grateful to have you. Yeah, I've been really, really loving uh, your book over the past few weeks, and it's got me just so thinking about uh, so many really interesting topics. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to speaking with you about neurodiversity. There's a lot of things coming together in this book, poetry and autism, and, and really listening, kind of listening on a, on a deeper level than most of us really do. I think there's so much for us to dive into here. I'd love to hear a little bit, you know, from you about sort of what or what inspired the book or, or you know, kind of what, what led to you writing uh, May Tomorrow Be Awake. Yeah, uh, thank you. I think... Originally, I had written, I'm a poet, first and foremost, and that's largely how I've primarily identified since I was a teenager. Uh, and early on, I kind of grasped onto that as like, oh, this is how I can describe who I am in the world and how I want to move through it. For me, it's always been more than simply the writing of poetry, but felt like more of a, a way of being in the world and maybe an ethical uh, relationship to the world. Uh, but after uh, a decade of working with neurodivergent students kind of haphazardly. It wasn't something I intended to do. It's just something that happened over and over again and seemed to be 
my most fulfilling uh, teaching relationship. At the time when we were starting the organization, a prevailing notion about autism was that the only strengths came in the STEM fields, right? That's kind of what the stereotype is and, you know, still is in many ways. And then on the other side, you have poetry, which is just has been become so alienating to so many people, even though I think of it as like a, a foundational kind of human art form. But the way it's taught often alienates people and makes them think that they're not smart enough to do it, which is this ridiculous idea, right? Because we think it's okay to teach to like kindergartners and we think it's okay for the people in like the ivory tower, but no one in between, which doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> so, so one of the things I had to do was write some articles, basically convince people that this could be a thing and was a thing. I used the experience of my 10 years of teaching to kind of illustrate that. And I found that I really liked writing about it. And as the work grew and our organization grew, and especially as I got to work with more and more non-speaking autistic writers, it just felt like I was sitting on a treasure trove of both poems, but also concepts and ways in which to meet the challenges of this world in a more thoughtful, kind, uh, intelligent way and resourceful way and creative way. So I kept writing the essays. And it, and it was an interesting opportunity for me to look back at both my journey as a teacher, but also my journey as a human being is ongoing. And being neurodivergent myself, it's been such an incredible gift to work with these writers and to kind of deepen into my own neurodivergence and into my understanding of it through, through my neurodivergent friendships, you know? So, and it's just like, you know, one of the things behind that name, unrestricted interest, is that every autism diagnosis carries this idea of a restricted interest, right? Which is supposed to be of abnormal intensity, or, you know, sometimes they're described as obsessions. And to me, they're just passions and areas of devoted study. And after a little while, I realized, you know, neurodiversity and neurodivergence was one of my, <laughs> I, I want to think about it all the time. And I can't, I, have, I haven't found a better framework for like how we might evolve as a species to meet the challenges of, uh, of this kind of tenuous and often fraught future. reframe a lot of things in your book you talk on page 53 about how when you you know tell people about what you do or you know they hear that you're um you know oh you you work with autistic people and then the, uh the the kind of a lot of the responses that you get are oh i could never do that or you're or you're really doing god's work you should be really proud of yourself i can't imagine how hard that must be i, I think that's just you're trying to just say something affirming you're trying to say something nice but it it's so steeped in sort of this bias that we have that sucks <laughs> that yeah you, that, that must be that must be really bad or you don't make it sound bad or hard in the book it's it's really sounds inspiring and, and uplifting and i just yeah it just really hit me when you mentioned that just how ingrained this narrative is that we have of like, oh, how, wow, or as a parent, how, you know, you're really hoping your baby is normal. <laughs> I really hope my baby doesn't have, you know, X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. Um, but it's like, what? 
why not? Wouldn't that enrich, like, wouldn't that enrich our family or our, our entire experience of life to have more, more diversity in the way that we process information and think about things and relate to other people? And what, what I mean, what, yeah, we pay lip service to it in our com companies that, oh, we want more diversity and diversity is good. And it gives us, you know, better, it's better for business and stuff. And, but like, but obviously we don't really believe that because that this is how we think about it, you know? Right. Or in the world isn't built currently to hold it in the right way, right? Because diversity isn't something we need to get more of. Diversity is inherent to our world. Every single gathering of people is diverse and every single gathering of people is neurodiverse. When I use the term neurodiverse future, it kind of sounds science fiction-y like, ooh, in the future, everything is going to be neurodiverse. But the truth is right now, everything is neurodiverse because all that means is that we have different minds and different body minds and that we move through the world in different ways and that what we don't have is a vocabulary to express that neurodiversity except for a medical pathology model and we don't have spaces to hold that neurodiversity in affirming ways so yeah it's always those encounters are so difficult for me and, and increasingly more difficult because i'm really good at masking uh, my neurodiverse ways people when they say things like that, they're not only demeaning the relationships I have with these writers, but they're also like explicitly denying my own neurodivergence, which is really hard. Like, like, where do I start in a conversation like that? Like one, I'm also neurodivergent. Two, these are some of my best friends and they're my mentors. And three, like, I literally have the best job in the world. I cannot imagine a better possible job. It's really interesting to take those, like the pathology models and turn them on their heads because everything in an autism diagnosis has a extremely positive uh, upside if you just tilt the way you think about it, right? So you take a restricted interest, you think about it as a passion. What is often seen around autism is this difficulty to socialize, right? On one hand, that's because autistic people actually pay attention to a much wider range of the phenomenal world so that they're not just focused on what's going on among the humans, right? They're interested in what's going on among the animals and the plants and the air and the objects around. They live in this animist world in which they really care about everything in this inclusive way, rather than just saying like, I'm going to tune everything else out and just focus on how people are socially interacting, right? And we need that right now. We're moving into this really intense period of climate change and climate catastrophe. And we need people who can illustrate for us how to see and hear differently when we approach the natural world and how to understand ourselves to be a part of it in a different way. Right. If you think about another, you know, hallmark of autism is sensory dysregulation. And that's true. Like I experience it a lot. Uh, things can be way too loud or chaotic for me. It's made it very hard in some ways to be a parent of two extremely high energy boys who were just like me when I was a kid. You know, I think that, you know, the flip side of that sensory dysregulation is if if we can find the right conditions, right? If you can find a world that isn't so neurotypically chaotic, intense, autistic people can really <clears throat> uh, tune in to what's happening in a situation and smell things, feel things that other people don't. 
And, you know, the majority of autistic people are synesthetic. So they have these experiences that are overlapping, which is really exciting. They smell, you know, the colors. They taste sounds. This is like a real thing that happens among most autistic people. I've always been extremely jealous because I that, that's, I don't, I'm not synesthetic. As a poet, I mean, that seems, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's only going to be helpful. Yeah, come on, give me that superpower. And then there's these great theories that people have that, that autistic people were the first because they link uh, synesthesia with metaphor, right? If you experience one thing as another thing, that's the foundation of metaphor. There are these theory, these great theories that, you know, among early hominids, there was some autistic, like, you know, cave person, and they were the first person to, like, come up with metaphor. But we only have poetry because of autistic people. So I love thinking about that kind of stuff. You're kind of reframing so much stuff for me. That's such a, a common th- belief about autism is, oh, it's yeah, you're really obsessed with kind of one thing. You get really sort of focused and fixated on one thing and, and you're not kind of just noticing uh, everything else that's going on or something like that. But really, that's not it at all. It's just that you're not so tuned into what the dominant culture um, really seems to care about of, you know, status or kind of superficial relationships. Or you talk so much about kind of how aversion to small talk or BS kind of encounters that just feel that they don't make sense or something like that. And I think in a lot of ways, yeah, just how how actually what uh, what you really uh, got me thinking about is just how 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 neurodiverse people actually see a, a broader they they see more because because we're you know a neurotypical culture is so kind of focused on what 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 you know is valued um, or what what we what we see as important that kind of we we miss a lot of a lot of the other things that's going on you know you talk about kind of the 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 more than human world or um this this sort of like looking beyond that and you know I just while I was reading your book I was walking down the street I'm in Boston really a cold day I went by this little little baby tree that you know someone had like knit a little sweater and put put a little like sweater on this tree you know it was really powerful moment to me of just you know I I don't know if it's you know someone you know with some kind of neurodiversity or something but somehow someone who really just has such a broader sense of empathy uh for for the world that that you know to to actually like care about this little tree that's that's gonna get cold um you know and and to take the time to sort of like create this sweater that's like little and that would fit it and just like how how we would would typically kind of it's that's kind of silly or something like that or it doesn't make sense but but why (laughs) not really it's just yeah absolutely yeah that and that empathy um, aspect is so important i think for people to understand because that's another thing that's been completely flipped on its head whereas when i first started working with autistic writers you know almost 20 years ago now the prevailing notion was that autistic people lacked empathy and which is which was an incredibly uh destructive stereotype uh and mis misperception. Turns out that autistic people actually experience more empathy than their neurotypical counterparts. It's just that empathy has three parts to it. There is the emotional empathy, like the initial feeling of it. That part for autistic people is significantly higher than it is for neurotypical people. And because of that, autistic people often feel kind of become kind of paralyzed in it because it's so intense that it overwhelms them. So they never get to the second stage, which is intellectual empathy, where you can really process, understand that that's the feeling you're having, 
right? And then the third stage is performative empathy, where you can actually make it clear to someone else that that's how you're feeling. For autistic people, it often gets cut short at one of those stages for various reasons. But through through brain imaging, scientists have made clear that autistic people actually feel more empathy than others, but often get overwhelmed by it. So that's one thing I love. The other thing that's so interesting about what you just said is how a neurotypical world is a narrow world. It is a small world. It is a way to inhabit what is this wild, you know, completely unbelievable existence into this very narrow track uh, to satisfy certain, you know, aspects of our society, you know? And one of the things that, one of my favorite anecdotes is that one of the writers I work with, Amen Bukela, who's uh, a non-speaking autistic writer from Toronto, we met, I have a friend, Sarah Wheeler, who teaches teachers in the Bay Area. She had Amen and I come in to talk to them about neurodivergence and about teaching neurodivergent students. And one of the teachers asked Amen, how did you know you could trust Chris? Like, how did you develop trust between the two of you? And Amen wrote, Chris was ready to meet me at the periphery. When I think about that narrow, neurotypical world, right? It drives right through the middle. When you meet someone else who's neurodivergent and who's ready to meet you at the periphery, skip all the small talk and go right to like the most amazing, exciting out there stuff. That's just like, it's the best feeling in the world. And I, and you know, the kinds of conversations I can have at the periphery with these writers are, are the kinds of conversations usually wait years to have. And I get to have them almost every day, which is just amazing. One really powerful example of that in the book is this kid you're working with who really is just in love with Planet of the Apes and, and knows everything about the film and has seen it so many times and can recite kind of every scene. And, and you work with him to sort of pull out this really long kind of poem that goes through all of his thoughts on it and sort of relay kind of um, some 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 depth and really his thinking about it and pass it around to his teachers. And there's really a powerful passage in here where you're, you know, just, just kind of watching the teachers react to seeing this thing written by this this child that they had maybe sort of kind of pa- pa- passed off or um, had not really um, seen as having that much depth to him. And, and I love some of the some of the things you say in here, which is that I believe in that moment they were really seeing Mateo for the first time. They had walked through an invisible door and gained entry to his planet. Probably maybe one of the most powerful lines to me of the book is my most uncomfortable suspicion, and I'm hesitant to put it in these terms, was that some part of them hadn't actually believed he was fully human. And I think I think that's yeah, that's so true. And it goes back to what you were saying, you know, before in terms of kind of people's response to, oh, that you work in this field and wow, you work with people who are not really fully human. That's really that must be really hard. But kind of the juxtaposition of that to the 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 fact that really there are are, are seeing the greater world, the more than human world, and sort of how these these two truths kind of really collide in your book in a powerful way. Yeah, I mean, that was, my work with that student was the first kind of, <clears throat> the first autistic student that I got to work with over many, many days when I was just a young teacher in an after-school program in South Brooklyn. And it was so, it was so exciting to go back and write the essay about that experience because I'd held on to that epic poem for a long time and to that story. And it felt like a foundational story to my teaching journey and career. And to really think about the film, The Planet of the Apes, and the ways in which humanity 
that our concept of what constitutes humanity is turned on its head in that movie. And that, you know, the apes are all like, these unintelligent creatures, like, how could they ever know something worth worth listening to for for him to pick that movie? And he picked, you know, the old one, uh, as I say in the book, the new one had just come out and he wanted no part of it, like the remake by, uh, I forget what his name is, Edward Scissorhands, Tim Burton. The Tim Burton remake had just come out and he had just, he wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, he only wanted to talk about the old one, you know, um, which was of his parents' generation or even older, actually, uh, his grandparents' generation. But he just saw something in that film that he connected to and it brings up so many larger questions about how we define humanity because the truth is is that we define humanity in two ways and both of them are really actually i would say violent one of them is against the animal which is ridiculous because we are animals and in forgetting that we are animals we separate ourselves from nature and nature becomes this thing that's part of a you know a beautiful landscape that needs to be preserved rather than reckoning with the fact that like we are nature and we need to be engaged with nature on the most fundamental levels rather than having it be this thing apart from us right and the other thing is that when we say someone who is like fully human when we say even the word human we don't think about all humans what we really think about whether we want to admit it or not is someone who looks a lot like me someone who is white someone who is male someone who can pass as straight and able and neurotypical uh who has generational wealth Everyone else is kind of varying degrees of human sort of underneath that somewhere. <laughs> but everyone else is is a step down, right? So, and it's another way in which a neurotypical world is a narrow one, is that we actually have narrowed the definition of what it means to be human, and everyone else is punished for not being able to approximate that. That's another thing I'd say for, that I think is really important that hits home really intensely for me is this idea of there are lots of us who are on the cusp you could say of autism and other forms of neurodivergence and for us we have the privilege of passing right we can move through certain aspects of society because we're we can approximate close enough as my friend mark says who's a non-speaker i talk about in this book mark calls me the greatest faker of them all and at first that killed me and then he went on to explain that like uh, not only have I mastered neurotypical masking, but he also thinks of me as almost like a gateway drug for neurodiversity, because if I can be neurodivergent, then so many other people can think about how they might be neurodivergent. And the, the dark side of that is that the more you mask, the more your body breaks down because it is emotionally and physically strenuous. Uh, it's a great stress to not be yourself. And this is one of the things that once you start really diving into it, you realize it's true for everybody because neurotypicality isn't so much an identity, but a practice. We practice being neurotypical and we're taught to practice it from a very early age. One of the things I believe deeply is that all children are neurodivergent. As we so-called mature, that we are uh, forced to put on the armor of neurotypicality. And it's an armor that hurts all of us in the wearing of it, it wears us down uh, because we don't get to be ourselves. We we have to perform a particular self and a self that isn't very interesting. Like there's nothing wrong with performing, right? There's nothing wrong with really meeting the world in in different ways, in different masks, in, you know, in a, in a kind of free theater 
Like if you're creative around it, that's great. But if you can only perform this one particular way of being and a way of being that almost none of us can live up to, uh, especially because, you know, disability is something that we usually have put in the corner and stigmatized. But at some point in our lives, all of us will be disabled. This is not a thing that we, that is a unique experience. This is actually everyone will become disabled at some point in their life. You know, none of us can live up to this idea of what it means to be fully human. But we have to create new ideas of what it means to be fully human. We're here with Chris Martin talking about how to parent neurodiverse teenagers. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Being neurodivergent 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, was really different than it is now. It's still not great, but it's there's just immense community to receive autistic people right now. You can really congratulate someone when they're diagnosed with autism, uh, rather than it being like it used to be delivering like a death sentence or something. Like now it's like, oh, actually, you're going to have some great friends. And I know a lot of people who have been diagnosed uh, as adults after their kids were diagnosed. And actually, that's what happened to me when I was a kid. I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 18. And my mom in the process was like, wait, this is seems hits really close to home. <laughs> and she got diagnosed. Take a hard loving look at yourself and how you might have already experienced a lot of this stuff and how you actually might be able to talk from a place of identification rather than of this like contrast, like, oh, now that means we're different. The moment when I first started practicing neurotypicality, which I traced back to around sixth grade, I really had no social framework until that moment. I experienced some bullying in sixth grade and then started really studying neurotypicality. And it made me very sick for many years when I was a kid. Really, this is what I have to do? I have to like think about how other people are thinking about me constantly. And I have to perform this particular version of what a person is and a kid is to be accepted like all of it felt so sickening luckily through this work um, and through the community that i take part in every day i was able to kind of reverse that if we're trying to fit in what are we trying to fit into are we trying to fit into some like beautiful flowing dress or are we trying to fit into some kind of like torture box one of my kids who is neurodivergent has a series of tics. At first, I found that like really difficult. I couldn't even pinpoint why I found it so difficult when the tics started. I check in with him every once in a while. He always says, no, I love my tics. Like they, they make me feel like calm. I started to really think back to the fact that I had tics when I was a kid that I'd totally forgotten about and that I got made fun of for. It was a real uh, challenge for me to not try to correct my son's tics because of what I had experienced. But the truth is he's, I don't think he's ever gotten made fun of at his school. Like he's totally accepted. And it's hard for us to imagine that the world has changed so utterly that that could be possible, but it really is a different world already. Want to hear the full episode? Head over to talkingtoteens.com slash register for a free trial of our premium podcast. You get exclusive access to loads of great content with no obligation. And your membership supports the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Get started today with a free trial over at talkingtoteens.com slash register. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.